Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gotzi. The point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest when they come on, identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically affects the life that you experience. And so I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on my brother, my quarantine partner, one of my roommates, Wyatt Haggerty. And this motherfucker brings a story today. It might be one of the most intense stories that has ever been shared on the podcast. Um, I don't want to give anything away, but if you want to hear maybe the most mind-shattering psychedelic experience that ended up being a nightmare, this is the podcast. Um, He brings a lot of truth. He's honestly one of the most eager to be destroyed by the truth of what is happening around him so he can become the man that he wants to be type of people I've ever met. This is an amazing podcast. I really enjoyed him coming on and just fucking sharing a story that most of us would not want to share with the public. If you want to support the podcast, the most direct way that you can do that is to leave a rating and a review on iTunes and then to share it. With anybody that you think it will bring value to or that it might help. Um, I hope that you guys are doing well in these crazy, crazy times that we are in. And just to give everybody a heads up, I am almost done um, writing the journaling course for uh, Cathedra, which is the company that I started recently. Um, It's going to be a 31-day journaling course with journaling prompts each day that are going to get into my core journaling practices because it's one of the questions that I could ask the most. And I'm really excited to share it with you guys. Just wanted to give you all a heads up that it's coming soon. And I love you guys. Thank you for continuing to support with your consciousness and your ears and your fingers. I love you guys. Namaste. My brother Wyatt. Welcome to the Myths That Make Us podcast. How are you feeling today, man? I'm here. Goddamn right. Yeah. What is something that gives you, that puts you into a state of flow? Just so I can ask the first question. Something that puts me into a state of flow. Mm-hmm. Do you flow what I'm saying? Okay, guys, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm really close with Wyatt, so I pun a lot. I will not do that again. Hmm. I don't know sex is up there cool let's say that uh because we're roommates this could actually happen you just had a beautiful experience that put you into a flow state well i guess this wouldn't make sense but just to go with it okay and i ask you who are you and what do you do in the world imagine people are listening and they don't know who you are what would you mm. say damn man <laughs> um who am I and what do I do in the world? Yeah. And you don't have to overthink it. I'm just trying to give people a sense of who is the me- who is the psyche that they're hearing talk right now? What do you do for money is what I'm basically saying. What do I do for money? Okay. 
Um, currently, for money, I am the executive video summoner of the Aubrey Marcus brand. And, but I think that that hits a larger point, and that point is that I want to tell stories myself, and I want to help others be able to tell their stories as well. And so whether that's through writing, photography, podcasting, creating videos, like all of those are avenues for people to articulate and explore their own truth. And whether that is <clears throat> through the lens of absorbing what I'm putting out and assimilating that and, and thinking on it, or I am helping they themselves tell their story, then you know, that's, that's sort of my my thing in the world at this point. It makes sense that we're friends. Yeah. How would your closest friend describe you and what you do in the world? Just a big douchebag that gets everything he wants. No, I, um, that may have been the description that he gave me 10 years ago, but my best friend, uh, we've, we've known each other for 22 years now. And I think he would, I think he would describe me as hmm. That's a really, really interesting question. Does this often just completely floor people and just stop them right in their tracks? Not often, but sometimes. Hmm. And just go with your heart, not your mind. The things that he tells me to hype me up are he's like you he he calls me the coolest person alive and you know says a lot of like really sweet things and i think that um he he probably would describe me as someone that's that's doing the right thing that's trying to do the right thing and trying to be better and and how would he explain to other people what you do he he would say he edits videos and makes things look pretty, but then also holds it down in so many other ways and helps keep helps keep many ships afloat. How would your lover describe you and what you do in the world? Simply, I think she'd say that I help give light. And if somebody asked her, what do you, what does Wyatt do? What would she say? He works for Aubrey Marcus. How would your dad describe who you are and what you do? Um, I think he would probably say what I'm going to do. And, and also be very proud of what I currently do. But I think he would, he would say he's doing this thing, but I know one day he's going to be a prolific writer and speaker and, and healer in the world. And how would he describe who you are? Um, probably the most complex and loving human being that he's ever met. <laughs> How would your mother describe who you are and what you do? Um, 
well, she calls me Baby Bear. So there's that's one name for it. But my mom calls me Ricky Tiki Tavi. <laughs> I think <clears throat> I think she would describe me as as some sort of light. I think she holds me in a very high regard and really sees through a lot of my bullshit. Sees that divine child in me. And however she would, you know, use her language to describe that, that would be the point that she's hitting on. Let's say that you're in that deepest part of an ayahuasca or mushroom experience. How would spirit or source or God describe what why it is and what why it is doing? In one way, I think it would be something along the lines of he's just wieting right now, but I know that that's kind of a cop-out because it's mm-hmm. an amoebus, like, mm-hmm. fractal statement that, like, of course he's wieting. Like, there's so many thousands of actions that contribute to... <coughs> excuse me. Contribute to wieting, but... I think ultimately it would be loving. And I don't mean that in the like pop song definition. I mean I mean that in like the the real definition. Like deeply deeply loving. What do you recall as your first memory? Um the thing that comes up right now and just going forward, whenever I ask these type of questions, that's the right way to go. I'm not asking for the historically accurate, specific, but what of course. is the first thing that comes to your psyche? Something instantly popped into my mind. Let's do it. Um, that I haven't thought of in a long time. It was actually the result of a photo that I saw for the first time in a long time. And um, it was me, my older sister, my two older half-brothers, our dog, who was named Reebok, who um, was a curly golden retriever, which is like uncommon, and uh, she was she was a great dog. And um, the picture that I can kind of see right now is us playing in the front yard of the first house that I was born in. It was a pretty um, like modest middle class house, and. Uh, I don't know, at that time, I can almost see what I'm wearing and I can see the sun setting kind of and I feel this sense of like we had everything we needed. And that's the, that's the emotions that I'm associating with that little flash of a memory that's inspired by a photograph. So would you say that the primary emotion is fulfillment, community, love? So I don't think that I had a sense of fulfillment at that age because I didn't really know what it was like to work for anything. And maybe we're using fulfillment in different ways, but I think that, I think contentment would be mm. a better better word for it. What do you recall being the first story that really grabbed your awareness as a kid? <clears throat> and that could be a book or a movie or a bedtime story. The children have this tendency where they find one of those things very early and they demand that it's replayed or reread over and over and over. Lord of the Rings. It came out when I was seven, the first one. Obviously, there were things before that. I think like 
Star Wars and Starship Troopers and Aliens and Terminator. There were all kinds of different things that I was into as a young kid. Mm -hmm. um, Sword in the Stone, The Black Cauldron, uh, Braveheart. But I think Lord of the Rings is probably the most... In terms of the amount of attention that I've given something, something, Lord of the Rings is probably the thing that I've seen most in the in the world. So I'm going to ask you to take a couple of minutes to tell that story, and I want to set the stage to kind of help you see where I'm trying to go and what I'm hoping to get from you. Imagine that you're visiting your family. Um, you know, maybe it's the holidays, and one of your nieces who is, let's say she's 10 or 11, she's really curious, she's sharp, she's asking you to tell a bedtime story. You're in a really calm, play, a calm place. You maybe did a cold plunge that morning. There's nothing on your mind about work. Your relationships are good. You're in a really still-centered place. Maybe you microdosed and took some mushrooms. <laughs> and, you know, it's the evening, and she asks you to <clears throat> tell the story of Lord of the Rings. And you know that she's got like maybe five minutes before she falls asleep. So if you, I would like for you to tell the story to us as if we were her. From your heart, not from, not trying to be accurate yeah. through your mind. I got it. How would you tell that story? Once upon a time. Once upon a time. There was a man that had everything that he needed. He had his world, and though the world was small, he had all the food, all the sunshine, all the laughters, all the, all the beer, all the friends, all the everything that he could possibly need. And one day an old friend arrived and asked of him something that he couldn't refuse. He wanted to so that he could stay with all the green grass and sunshine. But ultimately, what his friend was asking him to do was destroy a ring that could essentially control the entire world. And reluctantly, this man went on the journey, but he needed help. And so his friend accompanied him along the journey and on this journey they found many other friends and through this quest to take this ring to the place that it was made deep in the side of a volcano they crossed paths with many allies many enemies went through many trials many moments where they doubted each other and they didn't think that they could do it but they knew that that world that they loved so much that they wanted to stay in was worth saving. And through all of the battles, all of the wars, all of the bloodshed, all of the monsters, everything that this man and his friends faced, it was all worth it in the end. And at the very last moment, before they get to the place where they know that they're going to destroy this weapon, essentially, once and for all, the thing that saves him is his friendship. And at the moment that he feels like he can't carry on and that his strength is failing him, his friend that he had the whole time by his side picks him up and carries him up that fucking mountain. 
and they go and they destroy that ring and they save the world. And at the end of the day, it wasn't great armies or great speeches or anything that we would think would change the world. It was the heart of two insig seemingly insignificant men from a place that the world might have forgotten. What I find, and it's one of my little hypotheses, is that there's this idea from Joseph Campbell that he talks about that the soul, the moment it enters the womb, you know, when the sperm meets the zygote and it starts to unfold, that there's an energetic imprint, almost like in an acorn, it knows that it's meant to be an oak tree. And that once that psyche enters the world, it can't help but become attracted to the stories that will help it become what it's meant to be. Mm -hmm. And that that fundamentally is what our interest is. Like what grabs our interest, especially when we're young, before we're taught what we should like, are kind of where the guides start. And that whatever this first story is, there's a part of us that knows like, this is the story I need. And it's our story. And so I'm curious, for you, what was your Gandalf moment? What was that moment where there was the ordinary world and you wanted to stay there if you hadn't had the call, but you got the call and you knew that you couldn't say no? For you in your life, what was your Gandalf moment? And for those who might not know, and I can't imagine any of you don't fucking know this, but Gandalf is the old friend that comes into the Shire and calls them to go on their adventure. Mm. The, I wouldn't say this was the first Gandalf moment, but the most significant. No, I'll tell the first. The first Gandalf moment um, came, I would say, my junior year of high school. And I uh, was drawn to this class called Humanities. And in it, the teacher uh, basically took us through all of these great philosophical works and associated a movie with each of these like books or styles of philosophy essentially and the class went from reading and watching the movies to discussions and it was a very like eye-opening experience so an example of one of the like sections in the lesson plan was Plato's allegory of the cave was the text that we read. And then we watched the matrix and then we would have essays and, you know, long, like long form questions as tests. You know, there was no multiple answer. It was just like, I get what do you think? Hearing that a teacher did that specifically with the allegory of the cave and that what he chose was the, was the matrix. But yeah. Please go on. And it was, and that was the first one. So that was very, very intentional on his part. It was this very subtle, like, all right, y'all. I think you guys fuck up. Yeah, you guys are ready to to wake up, essentially. And I think that that if I had to trace back the moment that I became like aware of myself for the first time, it was probably in that class. And that's fucking wild to think about, really. Like I had had some moments of clarity, like smoking weed before that, like when I was 16 or so, but 
nothing made me go like, oh, I'm really in this bitch and this world might be an illusion. And the larger point that I'm getting at with the Gandalf moment is that that showed me that there was more than just history and basketball and going to the fucking movies or what, you know, like whatever you do in your ordinary world, like the place that I grew up is a place called Bethel Park, Pennsylvania. And it's a like small suburb town city kind of thing outside of Pittsburgh. And there's like 33,000 people there. It's not huge. It's not small or it's, I mean, it's pretty small comparatively to a lot of places, but it's pretty normal. It's the perfect ordinary world if you really think about it. And my friends that I'm still in touch with from that time, uh, we have a, a fun time reflecting on how asleep we were while we were in that environment. But essentially that class really showed me that there was something outside of it and there was a different way to be. And I became obsessed with philosophy for like a year. I like, I got paradise lost and, you know, all of these different things and just ate it up and like really uh, tried to assimilate that into my being. And then my senior year of high school came around and the refusal of the call came in the form of alcohol and <laughs> girlfriends. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I shut myself off to those things for a while. I still kept it in some way that I would access it at times, but I basically like put myself back to sleep um, with, with those, those decisions essentially. Cause you know, blowjobs and beer pong are way cooler than SART whenever you're mm. 18. <laughs> and you said that there was a most significant Gandalf moment that wasn't the same as the first one. What was that? Uh, that was doing mushrooms for the first time. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. So I was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I was mm -hmm. a division one basketball player, um, like a scholarship athlete potential to play professionally, whether that was in Europe or as the 15th man on the NBA team, just the token white dude that goes in and fouls LeBron and then gets taken out. That could have been my life. And when I was 19, um, towards the end of my freshman year of college, I went to a cabin with my friends and we did mushrooms for the first time. And it's funny that I chose Lord of the Rings as the movie that I most attached to because the biggest feeling as I was coming up on the mushrooms with my friends was this feels like the Shire, like in the fall or something. Like it was a really, even though it was in the spring, but the trees still hadn't like grown back yet. So I was like, man, this just has like a very like mystical, profound vibe to it. And I had, it was close to a heroic dose. My first experience, it was somewhere between four and five grams and it was extremely profound and it dissolved everything I thought I knew about myself. It completely shattered my whole worldview of where I should go and what I should do with my life. And I kind of had this sense of I should stop playing basketball and that I should be an artist or I should do something. Like I just felt this almost like a, 
a flower trying to grow underneath like gravel. Like I could just feel it like pushing up, but there was all this resistance and all these different things. And um, that experience showed me that I could be so much more. Like I saw myself as an adult. I saw myself with with children, with success, with community, with following my dreams, like making great pieces of art, like speaking to people, helping people, like doing all that shit that you dream of. And I let myself get convinced otherwise. I convinced myself otherwise that truth in hindsight was probably too much to bear at that time. And essentially, as I was returning to school after that spring break mushroom cabin experience, I just remember slowly but surely telling myself the story that I should stay and play basketball and then I should stay and do this thing and, and just, you know, exist in the status quo because it's safer. It's, you know, going to lead to the connections and money and whatever I need to become an artist because I was led to believe that it would be a lot cooler if an NBA player wanted to make a movie than if some kid from Pittsburgh wanted to make a movie. And while there's merit to that, I don't find it to be true now. And so I went back and I told my coach that I wanted to play and that I wanted to stay and do my thing. And almost immediately, I got sick. Almost immediately, my body rebelled against me. And that led to a very, very deep period of sickness and weakness and stress and confusion that ultimately, about seven months later, led me to drop out in the middle of the night, just pack up all of my things and move home and quit and abandon my team and um, abandon my scholarship, all that, everything that was going on for me. I, uh, the, sick, the state that I had found myself in because of refusing the call was so dire and like can you give people an idea of what the sickness is that you're talking about yeah um i find myself skirting around the issue out of fear a little bit um because i found that telling myself the story about it reinforces it in my body and so now my dance has been finding a way to be comfortable with talking about it with uh without making it a self-fulfilling prophecy essentially yeah, the thing that comes up in me is you can just explain the why to that time was experiencing x mm. okay fair the the wyatt from 2014 to 2018 um experienced heavily and dramatically um a disease called ulcerative colitis and it's an autoimmune condition where your intestines are basically being attacked by your immune system and so that's a very roundabout way of saying that you shit blood a lot and um essentially it began as just like what felt like a stomach flu and then it just stuck around for 
months and months and months and it would come and go in these waves until eventually I was like, I think I need to go to the hospital. Like, I think I'm actually like in trouble. Like this is not healthy. I can't eat anything. And I was too embarrassed by the situation to tell anybody about it. And I remember the first person I told, I called the, the like health services place. Like, you know, it's like the doctor, but it's not the doctor where all the students can go at the college. Mm. And, uh, I mean, it is a doctor, but it's like the easy doctor because it's like the student doctor. And I, I remember calling that place and was like, yo, um, do you know what having like bloody diarrhea is? And they were like, what? And I was like, I haven't had a normal bowel movement in months and this is terrifying me and I feel like I'm dying. And they were like, yeah, you need to go to the hospital. You need to go see a doctor. And it was this whole process and I thought that I had I thought that I had cured myself by getting medication and doing these things but the state that I found myself in um because of the sickness as I kind of got back to health with the medication that they gave me I saw how behind I was in school how you know just robbed of any happiness I was emotionally how um just physically defeated I was and um, I basically took this like sobering look at my life and I man I haven't thought about this in a really really long time wow <laughs> that that night that I that night that I realized all those things um, and I kind of looked at myself in the mirror and saw <sighs> I saw myself as a little kid and I was like what the fuck have you done man how did you get yourself here And I, I got in my car and I had a bottle of aspirin and a box cutter on the seat. And I was going to go check into a hotel and kill myself. And I was driving down these dark upstate New York roads in the middle of the night and a rabbit jumped out in front of my car and I killed it. It hit my front left tire and I felt it go under me and I stopped dead in the middle of this highway at like two in the morning and I realized that I felt something about killing that rabbit. And I, I realized that I still had something in me and that I still had a heart. And I just started bawling. Like I just started crying and I, I, 
I remember deciding that that's when I was going to take, take things back into my control and I was going to do what I needed to do. And I drove back to my dorm and I threw out the box cutter in the aspirin and I packed up all my shit and I moved out right then. I drove back to Pittsburgh and I remember calling my mom at like, I don't know, sometime early that morning. I was like, hey, I'm, I'm coming back. I can't be here anymore. And she said, I know. <laughs> My family had seen me at a, at a basketball game. Uh, we were playing against Ohio State. Um, and since we're from Pittsburgh, that's not a far drive to Columbus. And uh, there's a picture of me that I made them, I made them take it off of all their shelves because uh, I, I look like a corpse in it. There's a picture of us in the stands. I'm wearing my, you know, my warm-up suit or whatever after the game, our travel gear, and I just don't look like I'm there. I look so unhealthy and so dead. And that was like two days before mm. I went to go kill myself. And uh, I remember calling my mom and saying that I was coming home, and she was like, I'm so happy to hear that because we're so worried about you. <sighs> really interesting, man. There's a couple, there's quite a few things that come up, but for me, the, the one moment in my life where I truly thought that if I had had a weapon within reach, I would have killed myself. I was also in a car and there was this moment where it felt like this voice came in that didn't feel like me and it said, take responsibility one moment at a time. Because I thought I had killed a child and, and I was super high and I had drugs in the car and I just thought that I've done something unforgivable and that the only thing that I could do now is to kill myself. And man, you know, if you you can conceptualize it as God or that your psyche itself like knew to put you in that situation at that moment to have that event save your life. And in hindsight, especially after doing things like ayahuasca and mushrooms with intentionality, it's impossible to, to deny the feeling that there's this guiding force in our lives that's beyond the ego and to look back on our lives and to see those moments where it's like, no, no. I'm back. If you want to take that a step further, the day that I started therapy, and this was like, I don't know, four years later, I finally found a counselor that I really resonated with. Um, and it was maybe our second or third session and she finally got me to dig up that story. And she was like, you keep talking about this moment of when you left college. Why did you leave college? Like what was actually happening in your life? And I told her that story and I cried just like I am now thinking about how horrified I was that I would think about killing a little boy essentially 
that the thing that was experiencing so much pain and anguish was the child inside of me that just wanted love and just wanted connection and that I would dare think about ending that child's life I uh I left that therapy session that day and as I was driving home in the exact place where I would have hit the rabbit if that rabbit jumped out in front of my car again right exactly where the left tire goes in the middle of the street leading up to my house was a dead rabbit being eaten by a vulture and I say that in 100% confidence. Like it was, and when I told her the next week, when I saw her, I was like, hey, I want you to know that after I told you the story about the rabbit, there was a rabbit in the street being eaten by a vulture. She looked like she saw, like, it, not just a ghost, but like the mouth of God, dude. It was, it's hard to, comprehend but deeply within myself i understand all of it yeah the thing that comes up for me is so the hero's journey is the archetypical story that's been shared in all cultures across all recorded history and it seems to be almost the spiritual framework for how the soul does what the soul is meant to do and the and the real call to adventure moments we call synchronicities and there's quote-unquote small synchronicities where you see like a time or a number. Someone's like, oh, that's cute. And then there's these huge world-shifting synchronicities. And like for me, I think I was 20 or 19, hardcore atheist, materialistic, rationalist. You couldn't like try to tell me God was real and I was ready to debate with you for an hour about all the bullshit. I I, I was walking around my suburb and I was reading a book on um, transactional psychology and the founder of that, his name is Eric Bernay, um, or Eric Byrne. Um, <clears throat> and I was reading the intro quote to a chapter and the quote was something along the lines of the way to live your best life is to walk the world like a prince tossing golden apples for other people and at your deathbed you eat your golden apple and the idea is basically Ooh. hold on yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so the idea is like you you cast out light and ideas and beauty your entire life and then you fulfill yours in your last moment i'm walking down the middle of a street in a suburb there are no apple trees in this fucking neighborhood and in the middle of the road was one of those apples that are red and gold, but the part that was facing me was all gold. And I remember it so clearly. In that moment, I knew God. My entire world that I had created with my mind to keep God out broke. And I still have the book. It's in my library. And on that page, there's just pink highlighter, exclamation marks everywhere and stars. And it has that quote circled. And that was the first time in my life where I had visceral experiential knowing that I was fucking wrong. And it, it was before I had done psychedelics. And it was just this 
just this moment. And that sounds like one of yours. What I'm curious about is you've articulated that archetypical on the bathroom floor crying moment, like where the person realizes that everything that they have been doing has not been working in the life that they have, they know is not their life and they're finally ready to face the music. I've had that moment probably 12 or 13 times. Well, part of the function of refusing the call is time to go back to that. But also there's this other idea that the hero's journey is not a step one, step two, step three. It's this ascending spiral like thing where you revisit, right? Right. Yeah. But at higher and new elevations mm -hmm. every time. You want to know something wild, a total side note yeah. that plays into that? Um, the ulcerative colitis stopped the day I started my podcast. I have not seen a symptom since that day. Yeah, and you and I were talking about this at dinner yesterday. It's almost like if you imagine that your soul is like that spiritual acorn becoming an oak tree and you can almost imagine like its movement upwards is this like white guiding template for where your Tao is or like where, like that's your path. And the further and further the ego chooses to come away from that central guiding path one of the ways that your soul will try to bring your ego back to the true path is to manifest chronic illness and that it almost always manifests in a way that's symbolic and like for me i had recurring back pain for probably about 10 years like i would have back spasms that were so intense that i couldn't walk for a couple of days and they would always spark around feeling rejected by a lover and the big insight for me last year was um you know after years of starting to listen to my dreams and to learn how to interpret them i kept getting this symbol of samson from the bible and um at the beginning of 2019 i had one of my back spasms again where like it completely robs me of my feeling of autonomy or power. And it was right after feeling rejected by this woman that I, that I was telling the story that I, that I was romantically in love with. But in hindsight, I can see that it was my wound and that she was actually a soul ally, but there wasn't a romantic relationship there. And when she expressed to me you know, that she loved me as a friend and I remember the dinner very clearly and I felt all these things coming up in me, I felt the little wounded boy start crying at dinner. I realized that there's this wound that I have that will bring me away from my truth about how to be in the world. And when I get too far away, my body's like, all right, we got to do it. We have to give you a back spasm. And, and what's wild, man, is that the myth of Samson, he's basically, he's this super powerful warrior who is seduced by a woman and he gives away the secret to his power, which is his hair. She tells his enemies, they cut off his hair, they enslave him, and they put him inside of a temple. And he's chained to two columns. And when all the enemies gather into the column, he asks God for one last 
ounce of strength. He gets his strength back for a moment, and he tears down the two columns and kills everyone in the temple. <laughs> when I read that story last year, and my symbolic, intuitive mind got to play with it, it's like I watched 10 years of memories click into place where I realized because of what I witnessed between my mom and my dad growing up, I have this story that women will betray you. And that the way I literally manifested that in my body, my temple, was to bring down the two columns, which are the two muscles that go up and down my spine, which are the ones that seize up when I feel completely rejected. And that's just one really clear example that if you have a chronic condition, you're going to get stories from our culture that the solution has nothing to do with you changing your stories or to become more aware or to align to your passion or to step into your truth. It's to take a pill. And while the pill might mitigate the physical symptoms that cause you acute pain, they never fix the issue. But what we find, especially in our circle, and we can see people go through these, is that when you have an emotional breakthrough that changes the way that you behave in the world, people cure, quote-unquote, uncurable chronic conditions. Yeah. I mean, I watched that happen with myself. Um, I went to my first ayahuasca retreat in a flare-up, like traveled to Peru, you know, for, I don't know, 11 hours of flying, whatever it was from Texas and, you know, bleeding, having to run to the bathroom, do all these different things. And I watched my intestines heal before my eyes during that retreat. Yeah. And the last day during the Wachuma ceremony, I had a solid bloodless poop and was like, what's happening right now? And I remember looking at myself in the Wachuma glow and I just felt so, like I felt like all my cells were just like, it was like, it was, it was sexual in a way. Like they were like reproducing properly, if that makes sense. If you can think about it in the most like, take like the pornographic images out of the equation, but like take the, put the, the love and, and growth and like, yeah, reproduction essentially that my cells were like, Hmm, this feels fucking good. Let's like, let's make more feel good cells, you know? And, uh, that state didn't last long. I immediately put myself back to sleep <laughs> and, immediately uh started experiencing the symptoms again but it was a moment where i saw that my emotions and my behavior and my alignment with my truth was one of the biggest causes of that illness manifesting yeah man i did ayahuasca for the first time about two months ago i have had no si pain which is like the part of my low back where the pain manifests I have had on and off SI pain every couple of days. So I was probably 19 and I have not had it once in two months. And um, the big thing that came up for me in the ayahuasca experience that I think correlated to this was I became aware 
viscerally that um, I have felt guilt about how my life is. When I think about how my siblings saw me growing up, and the core of it is essentially that my entire life, I've essentially, like, it's felt like the way ayahuasca described it is it's okay that you just get it. There's been this feeling in my life that I just kind of know how to be and that it leads to what looks like luck and opportunities and abundance. And I felt sadness and sometimes hatred, but often resentment from family members really close to me. And I've always had this story of like, because your life is so good, you should feel guilty. And I had this moment on Iowa where it really felt like I put down the book pack of cement rocks. And I really think that that was the core of why I was carrying this pain in my back. And it hasn't come back. And that wasn't an intentional pun, but it had to be done. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, to reconnect to, um, you have that moment where you realize that you're going to face and take responsibility for your health. And you start down this path of a couple of years that eventually leads you to ayahuasca. I know that there's a moment in the middle, or maybe this was after your first time doing ayahuasca, but I would really like to get into your mushroom experience that really feels like it was a crescendo moment in your life. Um, I know you know the experience that I'm talking about. Was that after you did ayahuasca for the first time? It was the thing that brought me to ayahuasca. Okay, so... Um, can you give us a sense of what age you are at this point, how long you've been dealing with an autoimmune condition, what your life looks like, and what this experience is? This was February um, 16th, 2018. So I was 23 years old. Um, I was living in uh, Dallas, in a suburb of Dallas at the time. Um, with my ex who I had been with for three, three years at that point. Um, essentially what was going on is that, um, I was following a path that felt right to me. The solution that I had to um, all of my anguish and dropping out of college and stuff like that was to become a video producer, videographer, director, and start my own business. And um, I did that for a few years and failed pretty miserably at it quite often. Um, had moments of success, but um, essentially I was still deeply unhappy. I had really no friends where I lived in Dallas, um, work wasn't fulfilling and I was still just lost and kind of looking for things. I was playing video games probably more hours a day than I was working. Um, I was just feeling like really deeply unhappy. And about a month before this pivotal, uh, transformative night, that I had, um, I had an experience that was the most up until that point, um, the most beautiful and heart opening and purpose aligning, um, mushroom experience that I had ever had. 
and it was uh, twofold. It was two mushroom experiences in a row that really felt like I was stepping into um, my Tao in a way. And the first one was seeing just what I could do and feeling this enormous sense of purpose. And I, at that moment, which is really strange to connect to, I knew that I was going to be close to Aubrey Marcus at that moment. It was really odd. Like I felt like I could talk to him through the computer. And I was like, I know I know this dude. And it's, it wasn't like the way I feel like I know Joe Rogan where that's just, I feel like I know a lot about him, but it wasn't this sense of like, one day I'm going to find myself on the other side of this screen and be with this person. Um, and I had that same moment whenever I heard you on Aubrey's podcast for the first time where I was like, what's happening right now? Like, why do I feel like I know these people? Um, but that's a different story. But essentially like that experience showed me a lot of the things in my life that I was avoiding. And that was my work, my health, my relationship um, with my partner at the time was in a pretty poor state. The morning of that mushroom experience, she left to go to her family's lake house with her friend and we fought the whole morning, like screamed at each other. She left in tears. It was like, this whole explosion and um, she needed to go escape for the weekend essentially to like, so we could have space from each other. And um, what that, what that, and then the next um, experience that I had where she and I did mushrooms together and um, I felt this realigning in my relationship and I was like, great, this is cool. We're going to, we're going to get through this. We can always reconnect. I can always realign with my purpose. And then one night I was at the house by myself and I took maybe like a gram of mushrooms and uh, my partner was out of town. He was at a funeral um, in Rhode Island, I want to say. And uh I was playing playing video games and eating eating junk food and the mushrooms were telling me this is not what you need right now and I was getting like kind of stressed out and like didn't feel good and I told my friends like hey I'm going to log off I took some mushrooms and I just kind of feel strange I probably shouldn't be playing video games and eating shitty food um I'll catch you guys later and I walked into the kitchen where the bag of mushrooms was, and I had an ounce at the time. So that's 28 grams. And I put like, I had already had a gram and I put seven grams on the scale and I ate all seven of those grams. What was the thought process when you walked into the kitchen? Like, why did you decide to eat seven more? I don't know. Or I really don't know. Um, it, uh, I knew I, I had the idea of doing a heroic dose in my head from like Terrence McKenna. And I 
even though I was getting more aligned with my purpose, I think that my intention was like, I need a breakthrough experience. I need something that's going to completely, you know, show me like what I'm hiding from and what's, what's going on right now and how I can be better in the world. And so it was a good intention, but I, I guess I didn't really think through what eight grams of mushrooms was actually going to be like by yourself in a house that you don't like in a place that you don't like in a time in your life when you're very unhappy with things. And, um, so I ate them and I went upstairs and we had this really big bathtub, like one of those spa bathtubs and I'm an unusually large person. So it's hard for me to fit in bathtubs and, uh, I, you know, drew a bath, lit some candles and I laid in it and I blew the candles out and I was sitting in darkness as this enormous dose of mushrooms came on and, um, it was similar to an ayahuasca ceremony. I didn't know then, but the things that come up in darkness when you're on that high of a dose of psilocybin is very, very similar to ayahuasca. And it was really, really disorienting. I couldn't, I couldn't get my mind, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get anything to stay in the center and I couldn't get, um, I don't know. It just felt like very overwhelming and, and terrifying in a lot of ways. And I remember this is a really, really eerie synchronicity. And it's another one of those moments where the thing that I was describing about like knowing you and Aubrey and why I felt like connected was almost like a premonition. Like I could see the future or feel what it would be like to be, um, around those people. And I remember burping in this mushroom experience in the dark. And it felt like I had heard that noise like a million times, like that I had heard that noise in many, many lifetimes and many experiences and that I was going to hear that noise. I know the feeling you're talking about. Yeah. On ayahuasca, when people do this very specific type of yawn, now whenever I hear it, like whenever I hear someone, it's it's like a peaceful, contented yawn. I I have this feeling of like I have heard this for lifetimes. Yeah. So, what I didn't realize is that feeling. I can almost gauge as a premonition that I was going to do ayahuasca. Like it was almost like foreshadowing that this event that happened this night was going to lead me to do ayahuasca. Yeah. And so a, a thing that comes up is that idea of the acorn becoming the oak tree being like this, and you can see like it's white ethereal light as a guide. It's almost like when you really tap into your Tao because that path is already growing there's a part of you that can be that can almost sense what the next couple of stages are. But anyways, go on. So um, eventually that state that I was experiencing in the bathtub was too much to bear. 
and I needed to get out. And I think I had been in there for like a couple hours because like the water was completely cold. Like I was just laying in there eating all of these horrifying visions and having my mind run into every dark corner that I could ever possibly think of. And um, I remember getting up and turning on the lights and I saw myself in the mirror and I didn't recognize myself. And I was like, what the fuck is this thing? So I'm like 6'9", 6'10", like slender but muscular at the same time. And I looked like an alien. Like I looked like my proportions and my body, like I couldn't believe that I was in a... This, I just looked at like the way my arms moved and I like was making faces at myself and like opening my mouth and my eyes and like I just couldn't even believe that I was in a body and um I just remember having this like huge ego trip of like just being like really impressed by myself physically but also very like disorienting or disoriented at the same time of like holy shit I'm in a body but it's actually like a really dope body but like this is a it was this strange back and forth of like disbelief and over appreciation if that makes sense and so I started feeling like really high about myself and I was like all right cool if I was gonna if I'm going to ascend to this realm of like cult leader ego that I was feeling at that moment, what would I do? And then I started thinking about the world at large and getting like really upset about, I don't even know how to describe it. And this is a, this is a really, I'm just now making this connection that I haven't made before. Um, but essentially I, I started experiencing like a lot of anger, but it was like out of love. And it was essentially around the idea that like, I didn't know, let me back up. The thing that I was experiencing was this feeling of like, just complete like disbelief and disapproval of all of the things that society does. And I was like, what the fuck are we doing? We're doing all of this extra, like, painful stuff when at the core, all we are looking for is love and connection. That if we stopped putting ourselves in these boxes inside of boxes inside of boxes that are our house and our ego and our job and our safety and our trauma and all these shields that everybody has up, like, built around them, if we didn't have that, we would literally just be out in the street dancing and loving each other and singing and howling at the moon and eating and being around a fire. Like we would drop all these, like all these charades that we have in our society. And I was getting like really upset about it. Yeah. And I started, I started feeling, um, like I had figured it out and I was like, Oh, I get it. I understand the meaning of life and I'm going to escape from the matrix now was essentially what I was feeling as I was like, there's no way that this body and this reality and any of these different things is anything other than a hologram and I'm in the matrix 
and I've figured out the key that's going to get me out of the matrix, which is that love is the answer and everything's made out of love and it's fine. Um, but there was also this undercurrent of like, fuck y'all. I know what I'm doing. Like I'm, I'm the chosen one essentially. And in that moment, and I'm, this is the thing I was referring to, to connecting the, the pieces right now. I heard someone else in my house and I thought like genuinely thought that like agent Smith as in like yeah. the CIA or someone was coming yeah. to kill me and because thing, I had figured it out. There's a thing it's, it's giving me goosebumps. That's an archetype. There is something, man, I'm getting goosebumps because I've experienced this too. There is something deep in the psyche and it, it seems to be that, and this is a Jungian model, but this is what makes sense and this is what's coming up, is that the psyche you can think of as like the, to is the total house of your spiritual experience. And the ego is like one character inside of that house. When the ego gets too big, when it gets inflated, there's this part of the psyche that's like, oh, we got to motherfucking bring this dude down. And your psyche will use the symbol that you have that most represents that energy. And for me, and for you, and for many people who are deeply moved by the matrix, it's Agent Smith. And so a really common thing in dreams is if there's a character trying to attack you, that character represents a part of your psyche that is trying to bring a message to your ego that the way your ego is currently oriented, it sees it as a danger because if the ego actually accepted the piece of data that's coming from that part of your psyche, a part of your ego would have to die. And so the ego sees it as bad. And in your dreams, that's the murderer, that's the rapist, that's the monster that's coming to try to kill you. And the highest alchemy that can happen in the, in the dream is when you turn to it and you basically hear its message and you embrace it the lowest vibrational experience to that is to try to fight it, which is okay and normal. It's where a lot of people are at. And that's just what comes up is that there's this, there seems to be this intrinsic part of our psyche. And when it feels that the ego has gotten, when Icarus thinks he can fly up against the sun, this part gets activated. And I've had the exact same feeling of hearing a voice behind me that felt like the agent Smith saying, Oh, he, he's trying to wake up and it can so easily be misinterpreted by the paranoid schizophrenic as like there's, you know, the CIA or there's something going on that's trying to imprison you when I don't think that that's what it is. But that just made me think of that. Please go on. Yeah. I think that's very, very accurate the way that you describe that. Um, like what was going on and why I would have this like apparition almost of someone being in my house coming to kill me at that moment. And so it led me to swing the door open and walk through the bedroom. And I saw my dog and he's looking at me like, what the fuck is going on? Because he was outside the bathroom, just like feeling my energy mm. rise up. And it was, uh, I don't know, really like terrifying moment for me. And I remember what specifically just seeing like 
seeing him and knowing like almost inherently what was about to happen. And it was, I, I, it's hard to describe, but essentially I was like, no, I knew that I was going to like basically be killed in some way in that moment. And of course it ended up being metaphorical, but, um, so I, I walk out of the bedroom and I'm looking around for this person that I think is coming for me. I realize that no one's there and I'm still completely naked. And I decide at the top of the stairs that I'm going to run outside and escape the matrix. And, um, I go down the stairs, I swing the front door open and I run out into the middle of the street and I scream. I actually, <laughs> there was this moment right before I screamed that was, it was the quietest quiet that I can ever remember in my entire life. It was like the most intense, like poetic juxtaposition of just normal everyday you know suburban peace you know just like little crickets maybe on a you know winter a winter night in dallas texas in this little cute middle class suburb that we lived in and then all of a sudden there was a nearly seven foot tall naked man screaming for everybody in the neighborhood to wake the fuck up and i'm screaming wake up, wake the fuck up. And I don't mean get out of bed. I mean, like wake up spiritually, I guess. And, um, I just start running through the streets, screaming at the top of my lungs for everybody to get out of their own asses and like start to, I don't know, love the world essentially. And almost immediately, uh, after that first scream, I could hear dogs barking. I could hear people rustling in their houses. Like, it's amazing what you can hear when, like, if you really take a moment to connect with it. Also, the mushrooms help. Yeah, for sure. But, like, I could hear, I could hear people getting out of their beds inside their houses as it was happening. I could hear people, like, coming up to the windows and shit. Like, it was... It was really, really intense, and I'm the most full of energy that I have ever been in my entire life, and I'm literally sprinting full speed, yeah, not getting winded, like just barbarian levels of energy and strength, just running through this fucking neighborhood, screaming yeah. at the top of my lungs. A quick side note, I, I did five grams one time when I was in college, and I had this moment where I thought I realized that I had a brain tumor, and it like... It shook me and I just went outside and started jogging. And I jogged for like two and a half hours barefoot, did not get tired. And I had to tell myself, your body should stop. And then for the next six days, I could barely walk because that like tendon in the back of my leg that connects, it, it was basically my Achilles tendon was eviscerated. But yeah, that's a side effect of mushrooms. Sometimes. Sometimes. sometimes it wants you to lay on the couch and accept <laughs> and other times it wants you to run yep. a lot and um yeah so uh eventually i 
circled back around to one of the houses that was pretty close to mine across the street. And there was a woman standing outside, like an older woman, probably in her 50s or 60s. And she's like, she's like, what's going on? Like, what's, what's, what's wrong with you? And she sees me walk up and I'm like, everything's okay. Just like, <laughs> I love you. It's going to be fine. And she goes, oh my God, get away, get away, stay away from me. And she starts stepping back and she pulls out her phone and starts calling the police. And she's like, there's a man, he's naked. He's screaming at me. I, I don't know what's going on. There's a dog running around. It's, it's chaos. And like, I can still feel that moment where I realized that I was like terrifying someone in that state. And it was so like heartbreaking in a way to feel that I was like, that this woman thought she was going to be like murdered essentially. And she didn't know what was going on. And she was just trying to like stop the guy screaming outside her house from screaming more. And, um, so yeah, then I just started taking laps around the neighborhood and screaming even louder. And <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I thought you were going to say. What did you think I was going to say? I went and put clothes on. The police were coming. Nope. Heard. You know how the story ends. Oh, wait, you don't. You've never heard the story. Because you've told me that you wanted to wait until the podcast. Oh, I forgot about that. This has been months in the making. But anyway... Um, the months that make us. <laughs> so yeah, the, uh, the response to that was I'm going to run faster <laughs> and scream louder. And, can, uh, can you connect to what your feeling or thought process was at that moment where you see she's calling the cops? So, um, it felt like resistance in the matrix program. Mm, heard. <laughs> Do you know what the cover of uh, Tron looks like? Yeah. With that like almost cone of light that's coming mm -hmm. up and it's like it's starting on the sides and then it like hockey stick curves up the middle. Mm -hmm. That's what I felt like that image was like human evolution and like basically the trajectory of this simulation that I thought that I was in. And I felt that I was one-tenth of one percent from the very top and like escaping out the top and merging right. with God again and like right. and leaving and like dying essentially. And so I could see that like image in my head as I was doing all this. Like it was this energy that was just like, like forcing itself out the top of my skull. Mm -hmm. And like that if I just pushed hard enough, I would like basically disintegrate and like merge with with infinity was kind of like my my feeling at the time and uh so i start taking some laps around the neighborhood and my my dog is following me and he's freaking the <laughs> fuck out and you know how he is like it's uh yeah it is not a not a pretty sight and um there's all kinds of people in the street like what the fuck is happening right now like what is this dude doing and uh i remember like rounding a corner and seeing the police lights and i ran towards them <laughs> <laughs> i just sprinted oh, full man. speed up to the up to the cops oh my god <laughs> yeah and uh 
they get out and they're like, what the fuck is going on with you, dude? And I just start screaming at them, like, just so, like, aggressively. And uh, What were you saying? Uh, they were like, what, like, oh, man. this is where it starts to get really blurry and you'll understand why because there was a great deal of trauma accrued during this moment. Um, essentially, they were like, what's, what's wrong with you? And I was like, look at the world, like you're what's wrong with the world. And they and they were like, look at all this bullshit. Look at our fucking houses and our clothes and all this stuff that separates us. And I was trying to like, it was stuff that is really nice when a really like soft-spoken poetic man says it like by a candle, like it sounds really <laughs> nice. But whenever there's police lights and they're pointing guns at you and tasers and shit and you're naked and screaming at two in the morning in your neighborhood. It doesn't sound as nice. And the fact that you are huge. Yeah. Just dick swanging, dude, just out there screaming and jumping around. It was a, it was a whole thing. And so essentially, um, this, this moment was like really terrifying for me. And a, a big side note that I should add is that I, wore glasses at the time and I didn't have them on. Oh. So everything was super obscured and blurry and like it almost made it this yeah. fever dream where I could only remember like little blips and everything was distorted. And of course, like adding eight grams of mushrooms to that, like I was seeing some crazy, crazy shit. And um, they, the cops surround me. There's like, probably six cars pulling up at this point. Like it was a whole production and more came as the, the scene unfolded. And, um, they are all pointing what I think are guns at me. It ended up in hindsight that they never drew a firearm or intended to kill me, which was really nice of them. Um, but I found that out after the fact. And so they're saying you're under arrest and I responded to that with fuck you and that wasn't cool. <laughs> they didn't respond to that super well. And um, I just said, no, I'm not. I was like, who says? Who says I'm under arrest? You can't, you can't tell me what to do. And they were like, get on the fucking ground. And I was like, no, no. Like, I'm not under arrest. Like, you know, and then I, I think at a, a point I went back to screaming, wake up. Like, I think I went back into that, that program while they were surrounding me and they were getting closer and closer. And I think that they have guns and they're like, what's, what's wrong with you? And I was like, nothing is wrong with me. I'm on mushrooms. Leave me alone. And, uh, they are surrounding me and I feel this sense of like, oh fuck, like I've done something wrong for the first time. Like it finally sets in as like, oh, this is danger. And I start feeling myself get all like prey animal almost in a way where I'm like, all right, some shit's about to happen. Some shit's about to go down. And he says, get on the ground. And I said, fuck you again. And uh, he, the this lead officer that I was communicating with the most, who during this exchange, I told him that I loved him. I asked what his name was. And he told me his name and I told him, officer so-and-so, I love you. And he was like, what? <laughs> and it was just this really uh, interesting kind of mix of 
trying to do the right thing in the absolute worst way possible. So he says, get on your knees, you're under arrest. And I said, no. And he shoots the first taser into my shoulder. And um, I don't know if anyone listening has ever been tased before, but it fucking blows. It is like not, it is not a fun experience. And the first one hits my shoulder and I get like energized by it. It does absolutely nothing to like incapacitate me. And I just start fucking running like as fast as I can. I think I pushed like an officer out of the way. And as I'm running, two more hit me in the front. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, like running. And I can feel my, like every part of me feels like it's on fire. And like, I'm seeing these visions of like, bears decomposing and volcanoes going off and like all this insane imagery is in my head and it almost looks like it's in the world around me and um i i start losing control of my body after probably like 50 yards of running or so and i run like basically my whole body slams into a trailer that was parked in someone's driveway and I kind of like spin move around it and keep running. And uh, finally they catch up and more tasers hit me um, like on my sides. And I think one hit me in the back. And so there were six tasers <laughs> discharged into my body. And I finally like collapse on the ground. Like my muscles give up and I fall like as I'm running flat on my face and um, I still have the scars on my uh, shoulder and knee from the fall, and I still have the scars on my hands and um, under my chin as well from this from this night. And uh, I don't know how many police officers piled on top of me, but essentially they were all wrestling to get me to put my hands behind my back and arrest me. And I was winning somehow <laughs> face first on the ground with people pulling on my arms to get me to put them behind my back. And I was resisting it somehow. And they, one of them said, Jesus Christ, he's strong. And I responded back with yelling, I'm strong <laughs> as loud as I could. And, uh, true story. And, um, eventually they were just like, this is not working. We're going to have to pepper spray him or something. And, uh, so they do, I'm on the ground with all of these taser barbs in me. My body is like twitching. There's like probably four or five, who knows how many people on top of me trying to wrestle this giant energetic man that's trying to escape from the matrix. And uh, I start feeling like I have to die. And I start feeling like my life is over and that they are all the code of the matrix that's here to put me back in and that this is the height of the agent Smith experience. And, um, so I was like, all right, well, if screaming didn't help, if that wasn't going to be the, uh, the, 
you know, the exit code out of this operating system, then I just have to kill myself. And so in this state where on, if anyone listening has been pepper sprayed before, it's a horrible experience, but essentially in the state of being on eight grams of mushrooms, it felt like my skin, the skin on my face was coming off, like that it had, it had been covered in acid and was like turning into mucus almost. And I just started scraping my face off the, um, the asphalt and like just carving away like pieces of my chin and my cheeks and my nose. And just like, I actually have a piece of one of my front teeth, uh, missing from this, just a little, chip that I started like grinding every part of my face off the, off the asphalt of the street. Um, and I, what I was seeing in my head was that every time I scraped my chin across the ground, like a group of pixels, almost like Tetris blocks would be broken off. And so I was like, okay, if I can't, if I can't die or escape this matrix, this way, then I'm just going to have to do it basically like pixel by pixel is what I was seeing. Um, and so the rest of this, uh, gets very blurry for me, um, because an ambulance arrives and, uh, someone chemically sedates me. They put either ketamine or some sort of like barbiturate, probably, um, probably a, a barbiturate I would imagine, um, they inject it into my leg or into my butt or something like that. And I start relaxing. And I remember this like really intense moment of feeling like I was going like back into the womb, like that I had, that I didn't know if I was successful or not in escaping, but I felt like I wasn't going to wake up again as I was like going into this void state and um the next and really only thing that i remember before waking up the next morning was being in the ambulance um kind of coming in and out of consciousness and just being like having a moment to be aware of the situation that i was like double handcuffed to a gurney covered in blood i had taser barbs still stuck in my body um and i just had this moment of like okay, I think it's time to, to let go. I think it's time to like, just go peacefully. And I had just heard a story about a yogi that reached such a place of energetic purity or enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, that, um, he just left his body. He was just sitting in meditation, kind of like Luke Skywalker when he just chooses to disappear in the meditation pose. And he just like, he just let go. He just reached this state and allowed him, his spirit to leave his body. And I was like, okay, it's my time to do that. And so I started going through the steps in my head of what it would be like to leave my body. And I started seeing this kaleidoscope above me on on the ceiling of this uh ambulance and it was like the most welcoming like pink and gold and blue and white lights just like breathing me into infinity and i started just feeling like oh, 
I can go, I can, I can do it. And, uh, and all of a sudden I heard a female voice come into my right ear and she said, you don't get to choose when you go. And I was like, okay. And the kaleidoscope disappeared and I closed my eyes. And then when I woke up the next morning, um, I was, both of my arms were handcuffed to the hospital bed that I was in. Um, there was only a gown draped over my dick. They didn't bother to put me in the gown or clothe me in any way. Um, and so I'm kind of like freezing cold. I know that I'm like wounded. I can feel like a lot of pain, but it's still very like dissociated. Um, I can see the taser barbs in my chest. I can see my hands are covered in scrapes and blood. And I look over and there's a police officer um, sitting in a chair with a shotgun in his lap. And uh, the first thing I said whenever I woke up was, you're good, man. You can go. <laughs> I was like, hey, dog, it's good. Like, I'm fine. You can get out of here. Like, I was telling the police officer that's there to shoot me if I try to <laughs> do anything. Um, and yeah, and then it really started to set in when they knew that I was awake and they knew that um, I could be transported to the jail essentially. Um, but I remember really feeling at peace despite, despite everything that had happened. I felt like extremely calm. The only worry that I had as they were putting me in the, the police car to go to the jail from the hospital was I kept asking, where's my dog? And, uh, they wouldn't tell me, I guess either they didn't know, but they were playing it off. Like I wasn't worthy of that information. And it was really odd. And I just remember like the whole like 30 minute drive from the hospital to the county jail. I was like, where's my fucking dog? And they were like, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't, they would either not respond or, give me some answer that was basically like, you're not allowed to know. And so I thought that he was either dead or that he was in some sort of dog jail where they were going to execute him because his owner was a very bad boy. So he had to be put down. And so all of these, and of course, because of the level of paranoia that I was in because of that event itself, I was willing to believe even the next day that someone was going to kill my dog because I had woken up essentially, if that, if that really makes sense. Um, but yeah, I was a celebrity in that, in that jail that nobody fucked with me. They were just like, they took one look at me and they were like, what happened to you? And I was like, I fought eight police officers. I got tased a bunch of times and I was on eight grams of mushrooms. And like the scariest dude in the cell would just look at me and be like, okay, you're good dog. And just like not, not fuck with me. And I got put with the violent offenders. Um, and we all got along really well. And I just remember getting my one phone call and calling my mom 
And I think the first thing she said was, she was like, buddy, what happened? And no, that was what my dad said. My mom said like, like sweetheart, are you okay? And uh, yeah, that was a, that was a thing. That was a, a tough moment calling your mom on the jail phone. And so the way that they had all found out was, um, I don't know how they got her number or what the deal was, but somehow they called my girlfriend at the time. Somehow they got her number. I think the that... police? Uh, yeah. Somehow... I had given them the number. I didn't have my phone with me um, because I was naked, but they, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I guess somehow in that state, I was able to tell them her phone number and they called her while, so this is on a Saturday morning then or a Sunday morning. And she um, is like about to go to her, her aunt's funeral and she gets a call saying, she gets a message from one of the police officers saying like something has happened you need to um call us back it's regarding your your boyfriend Wyatt Haggerty and uh yeah she thought that I was killed in a car accident or something like that that um she had no idea and she was left in suspense for quite a while as I think that the woman she eventually spoke to was very vague about what had gone on and she didn't really have the full story for a while. And so then everybody's scrambling to figure things out. And, um, my dad was, um, the first one to come. I think it was about like 24 hours after it happened. He blew in and immediately came and bailed me out of jail. And, uh, yeah. Because there's so much more to explore here, <clears throat> we're going to have to do a part two. <clears throat> but the question that comes up in me is, if you look back on that situation and you choose to see it as your soul needed to give you this experience as a story, to help you find your path. If you had to look back on this experience and extract out like, if this story were turned into a bedtime story that your higher self could tell the ego <laughs> to guide you, what would that story be? Mm. You want me to tell it in bedtime story format? Yeah, why not? Okay. Um, say that there was a boy who was afraid of nearly everything and was lost and felt isolated and alone and just wanted answers, just wanted to feel connected to something, just wanted to feel like everything had a meaning and a purpose and that all of the pain that he had been through, all of the confusion, everything that he had learned and 
experience that it all meant something. And one day he drank a little bit too much of a magic potion that usually showed him that things meant something and that there was a purpose to all of this pain. But instead, at that amount, in that state of mind, the magic potion gave him a bit of an overload and tricked his ego into thinking that things were one way when they might not be. And that experience ultimately led him to man honestly it feels like the story itself um it feels like that event itself was was simply a catalyst like there's all these um symbols and and lessons that i can pick out of it because it was such a vast like overarching experience um but in all honesty in non-storybook format it it really just felt like it was a catalyst like that it was this almost like zero point that everything that i had been avoiding all of the turmoil and pain and confusion and all these different things just condensed itself into this like almost like black hole in the center of my life and that moment was the painful explosion of the big bang in a sense and that that night was the reason that i went and did ayahuasca and ayahuasca was the reason that i started my podcast and my podcast was the reason that you and i met in the first place and you and I meeting in the first place led me to believe that I could be here and work here and find my tribe and do all of these different things. And finding my tribe led me to this new relationship that I'm in and led me to healing through all of these different things that I didn't think that I ever could or could heal from or would want to heal from. And so as terrifying and chaotic and painful as this moment was like it felt like the growing pains of a universe coming into being essentially and that what it showed me was the grand spectrum of human experience like the highest high of connection and bliss and divinity and the lowest low of violence and pain and destruction and those feelings come back to me quite often um, in psychedelic experiences and not in psychedelic experiences um, most notably is almost every time i do a decent amount decent enough amount of mushrooms um, i will feel what it's like to be tased again and I felt it numerous times during ayahuasca ceremonies that that it's still in my muscles. It's still in my fascia in some way. And yeah, I think ultimately that that was 
that was the catalyst. That was the slap in the face from my higher self. It was like, you are straying so far from your, your calling and your way that you need the biggest wake up call that you could ever possibly imagine to find your way. This is part one of why it's myth. Thank you for coming on brother. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for the very easily the most epic story that's been shared on this podcast. And I tell you all the time, but I really respect how bravely you say yes to dying and to transforming and you're a light man. Thank you. <laughs>